Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, supported by listeners like Janet Price, Mark Brodsky, Mark Dennis, and Russ Aloha Archibald. If you'd like to help and you're able, that means you're not on unemployment, at least. Go to my website, peterbcollins.com, and click on the link that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. In the second part of this podcast, we're going to do something a little different. Your humble host talks back to the Secretary of the Treasury. I was screaming at my television set just uh, just last night as I watched Timothy Geithner bullshit his way through an interview on the public television news hour. So we're going to let the secretary speak, and then um, I'll respond. Somehow I don't think he has time to talk to the Peter B. Collins podcast. Or if he did, uh, would he choose to? I can't say. I just can't. I don't know. But uh, we'll do our best a little bit later in this podcast program. the faces Ronnie Lane Rod the Mod Bod Stewart and it's a song about hindsight and we're going to dedicate this to the evildoers and some fine people I guess who work for BP Jason Leopold returns to our program, the intrepid investigative reporter, deputy managing editor at truthout.org. And I know that's one of his favorite tunes because he posted it on Facebook recently. Hello, Jason. Hey, Peter. Indeed it is. And it's, Indeed it is. it's kind of appropriate, and we'll, uh, we'll dedicate that to Kevin Hostler today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if only he knew. So we're going to back into this story in reverse order because right. you published a piece uh, on Tuesday, right after the 4th of July, uh, regarding BP's management of the Alyeska pipeline in Alaska and the BP-made man who has been put in charge of that in the last few years is Kevin Hostler. And one day after your story was published, 
Kevin Hostler resigned to spend more time spreading tarballs with his family in Houston. Indeed, yeah. It's, uh, the story did have, uh, apologies for that, did have a uh, pretty significant impact. And, uh, you know, I spent about two weeks reporting on this, uh, on this particular story. And it revolves around, you know, many of the same issues that we've been talking about regarding BP, uh, cost-cutting uh, at the expense of safety, integrity of their own infrastructure, uh, safety of the, uh, of the employees being put at risk, uh, the likelihood that uh, their cost-cutting measures will result in a spill, uh, danger to the environment. So it, it really isn't a coincidence that, uh, we're seeing similarities between Alieska Pipeline and BP. First of all, as you mentioned, Kevin Hoffler uh, spent 27 years at uh, BP. Uh, in fact, the way it's described uh, is that he's on loan to Alieska. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, BP owns a majority stake in the company. They exert uh, quite a bit of influence, wield enormous, you know, uh, power over. Uh, the decisions that are that are made, and uh, this was, um, you know, this this was a, a story that really discussed all of that and discussed how the employees, how they're, and, and when I say employees, with regard to Alieska, I actually mean senior managers. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, just I don't, I don't mean to uh, make it sound that uh, you know when I say low-level employees, but these were people in. I mean, I don't mean this, that to sound derogatory. Mm-hmm. These were people in senior positions at the company who leveled some explosive charges against Hoffler, against, uh, uh, you know, alleging some serious cost-cutting, uh, that uh, he was retaliatory. And, in fact, an independent investigation that I first disclosed in my report yesterday uh, confirmed that, confirmed that... Uh, now, this was someone who um, was, uh, was, was not very nice. <laughs> and it's a report actually recommended, from what I understand, a leadership change. Mm-hmm. So the story came out yesterday. It uh, uh, caused quite a stir within Alieska. Uh, I, I, from what I understand, there were people who were very upset in senior positions because uh, some of the details I disclosed, which were based on internal documents, uh, I guess the story that um, when questions were being raised months ago, they uh, they received a, a different story, you know, from Hostler, and uh, clearly the documents say something else. Well, Jason, before we delve into the details here of Hostler and his mismanagement of the pipeline in Alaska, just a little quick background. This is a story that the corporate media has been all over. And you have outmaneuvered them, outreported them, and scooped them on a regular basis, going back to our first conversation uh, almost two months ago about the Atlantis uh, uh, drilling platform in the right. Gulf of Mexico. Uh, you've done excellent reporting on the Deepwater Horizon uh, blowout and the failure to uh, have adequate uh, uh, plans in place to address uh, such a calamity. And uh, you've also uh, just done a great job of exposing this pattern of behavior on BP's part, where cost-cutting has led to sheer recklessness in the maintenance and safety and response areas. 
And I really want you to stand up and take a bow right now because you've done such great reporting that it has been stolen from you uh, by the Wall Street Journal front page story that I saw just a week ago. And uh, you and I traded some comments on Facebook about that. And uh, also on the Atlantis, uh, the the Atlantis story and and this, uh, we're seeing that uh, your reporting is so good that the corporate media is taking it lock, stock and barrel and not bothering to credit you or truth out for no, the, the in investigative fact, work. They're not. And, and, you know, it's actually incredibly disturbing. And uh, I don't think it's a secret that uh, at, at this point that the news organizations are literally just using the material uh, and uh, just stealing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how, how else to describe it. Uh, you know, just to go a bit further, it's not as if they are, uh, you know, just taking it and not contacting me. What's most disturbing about this, Peter, is that in many cases, I actually have communications with the reporters and their producers, if it's, if it's uh, uh, you know, the cable news outlets. And they're just absolutely, you know, speaking to me as if I, you know, should give them all the information I have without uh, any quid pro quo there. The quid pro quo being, how about a mention? How about a link back? I mean, it's truly dishonest. It's unethical as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and uh, it's, it's quite troubling because I'm, I'm working these stories on a shoestring. And, you know, truth out depends on, you know, funding from our readers. That's, that's where we receive all of our funding. And, uh, you know, to, to have conducted an investigation on, on this particular story was incredibly, it's such a painstaking effort. Um, it was highly detailed, uh, you know, technical, uh, and, and took quite a while. And I was doing it solo. And uh, literally today, you know, the story comes out, and, and, or the announcement was made about his uh, uh, resignation. And, and frankly, you know, CNN, uh, which is the fifth time, actually, uh, fourth or fifth time, I, I've lost count, in two months where, where they've just literally repackaged my story uh, without any credit whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did credit once on their blog, but on their video, when, when they aired a, a segment on Anderson Cooper, they left that out. So it, it's actually troubling, and, uh, you know, I, I think that it's appropriate where when someone does, uh, you know, this type of reporting, that, that, that uh, you at least mention it. Yeah. Well, I am troubled by it as well, and that's why I wanted to bring that up early in our conversation here so people are aware of the hard work you've done and that when they see it uh, replicated or copied or plagiarized uh, on their favorite corporate news program, uh, that they'll think, oh, yeah, Jason broke that story. He he dug that up. And I, I certainly want you to get credit because I have a lot of respect for your investigative abilities, and the way you dig into public record materials, uh, track people down and force them to talk to you on the phone, uh, you, you do remarkable work, and it, it's beyond shameful that uh, they would take it that really is, you and, know, as, and as, not give as you, you appropriate that, credit. And, and, I, and, and thank 
you, Peter, because uh, you know I really, really appreciate that, and I just again can't tell you how how troubling it is. Uh, you know, I have to say that if I were working for the New York Times or working for the Washington Post, if I were working for uh, any mainstream outlet, frankly, this just wouldn't happen. And uh, perhaps it may be the name Truth Out. Perhaps it's you know, Jason Leopold, maybe they read News Junkie and, and, and you know, they're troubled by the details or, or, or revelations. Uh, whatever the reason is, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, you're using my material. Uh, you're using it to form the entire basis of a story that you're putting together. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the right thing to do is to state that. It's, it's called transparency. You let your readers know, you let your viewers know that, uh, uh, you know, this, this did not originate with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, could you imagine if, if uh, I wrote a, you know, separate story about Stanley McChrystal resigning uh, and, and literally made no mention of uh, Rolling Stone, which uh, forced the resignation? I mean, it, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of ridiculous. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. And, of course, we have seen... Uh, the Rolling Stone piece and its author uh, vilified by corporate media reporters, and Laura Logan deserves a, a special negative mention in, in that uh, vein, because uh, clearly they didn't get the story. Yeah. And they haven't been diligent enough, they really haven't asked the right questions, and they haven't challenged the basic premise of the mission in Afghanistan. Uh, recently, because of McChrystal's resignation... The media has been forced to confront some of the issues that uh, people like me and other voices have been raising consistently since Obama became president. Right. And so uh, these these are very important issues, and we are seeing the sleight of hand used by the mainstream media in this country. And, you know, CNN, they're having a hard time. They've been outfoxed and... They're trying to celebrate Larry King's 20th anniversary as they shunt yeah. him out the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mr. King, your wheelchair is ready. Right. Don't, don't, don't uh, delay on your way out. So, um, all right. That said, give us a quick sketch of Kevin Hostler and the way he has been managing the Alyeska pipeline, which is a consortium of, uh, uh, it's, it's comprised of a consortium of owners but very much like the transocean arrangement right, at, yeah. at uh, Deepwater Horizon and other platforms, even though transocean is nominally the owner of that platform, uh, they were taking orders directly from BP, and as you disclosed in a previous report, uh, on the very day of the blowout, there was a meeting on that platform where the BP person prevailed. The BP manager insisted that in order to save money and cut the timetable to get oil pumping out of that well, that uh, they made decisions that essentially just countermanded the best advice of the engineering people from Transocean. And that's a pattern that we see playing out in Alaska. Right, yeah. And, you know, Alaska, which you and I have actually spoken about quite a bit over, geez, over the past five years, uh, or, or four years uh, regarding BP, regarding Prudhoe Bay, the North Slope, and the the uh, uh, safety concerns that uh, that that came up there. Uh, and and you know the Alieska, yes, made up of a consortium of companies led by BP. 
uh, Kevin Hostler, as I mentioned, a uh, uh, former BP executive. And they operate the 800-mile Trans-Alaska uh, Pipeline, which, uh, which transports uh, about anywhere from 600 to 700,000 barrels of oil per day. Mm-hmm. And that accounts for about 15% of uh, our crude supply here in the United States. In fact, Peter, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline is uh, crucial, uh, you know, a crucial uh, artery, perhaps, if that's the vein mm-hmm. of, of getting uh, oil here to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a third, you know, more than 30 years old. And, you know, as these, uh, you know, as the pipeline ages, it's, it's it uh, gets older, it's, you need to have people right there uh, maintaining the, or, you know, monitoring it, making sure that, uh, that, that uh, checking it for corrosion. So you can't, you know, although technology has changed and you can improve uh, certain things, re, you know, regarding uh, making things automated or, uh, which is what they've done with their pump stations. They've gotten rid of the, you know, uh, the employees who work there, and and uh, turned them into automated pump stations. That's a whole other story. But here, you need to have people literally right in the vicinity of this pipeline. Just to give you an example, uh, some years back, uh, somebody decided to take a gun and, you know, put a bullet into the pipeline, uh, and there needed to be. Uh, individuals ready to respond to that. Well, under Kevin Hoffler's controversial plan, uh, which is pretty much near being fully implemented, uh, he decided to, in, in order to save $4 million, and keep in mind, $4 million for a company like Alyeska, even, like, even for BP, is truly uh, you know, a drop in the bucket. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the employees I spoke to said that we, they spill more oil than that in you know, a month, a week, Jason, when you consider the distances in Alaska, it is a huge, huge territory. Oh, it's, and, it's huge, yes. And, and as I, it's such an important point because that's what was really explained to me uh, is that uh, this is really a distance that they're going to have to travel. And as I read your piece, I thought, well, why not just relocate these people to Houston? 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> By the way, that, to, to spend more time with their families. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's really, it, that was just one area. And then, of course, there's the other area about budget cuts and deferring project maintenance and upgrades. And, and uh, you know, senior employees said this was done on orders, you know, by, by uh, ordered by BP. And that, you know, BP really is the 800-pound gorilla in the room when, it, when, when things are being discussed with the other owners. They, they own the majority stake in the company. Uh, so, you know, the employees were very, very upset with this. In fact, an internal review, you know, they did an internal review, 39 pages, said that, you know, for the safety uh, and integrity of this, you know, crucial piece of, uh, you know, infrastructure, uh, this pipeline, we need to keep the people in Fairbanks. And uh, they were overruled. And uh, employees decided to go outside of the company. Now, first of all, they also felt that they could not safely, they could not safely uh, state their opposite, you know, state their uh, uh, concerns, you know, to their managers because they feel they felt that they would be fired, which is something that we heard about BP um, over the years particularly, again, dealing with Alaska. And, it, and Jason, let me hear a quote from yeah. a, a report that you somehow obtained. And this is a confidential management survey or review of Mr. Hostler's work. And you quote the, the report as saying that Hostler is described as a narcissistic despot who will be remembered for his management style of intimidation and fear. At the senior management level, Hostler has made a mockery of the open work environment system at BP, by, or maybe that's Alieska, I'm not quite sure, by neutering our VPs and directors who are openly afraid to disagree with his initiatives, even when it is detrimental to the operation of the pipeline. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, and again, that's from a senior member of Alieska's team. So... This is this is someone who, and, and by the way, let me just add that the investigation, there was an independent investigation done or conducted to look into complaints like this. And, and, and by the way, that's just one of about four dozen uh, that, uh, you know, that, that, that I looked at. Now, granted, there's, you know, it's a big company and there's a, a number of uh, uh, hundreds, thousands of people who work there. Uh, I did try to find... You know, individuals who felt differently, and they just did do not exist. And I spoke <laughs> to many, many people there, and, mm-hmm. and again, this was a story that I spent about you know almost a month on. So uh, it became such a you know major major concern for these employees that they decided to reach outside of the company, and they sent to, started sending anonymous emails uh, and and inquiries to uh, BP's ombudsman's office uh, again. That's an entirely a whole other story there mm-hmm. uh, to uh, try and get the ombudsman's office to address it. Now, what's interesting is that the ombudsman's office is BP's ombudsman's office. So, you know, one of the, one of the lines that uh, uh, the, the official statements from BP is that they have nothing to do with Alyeska. You know, if you try to link BP and Alyeska... Uh, up together, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try to come down hard on you because they, they, they claim that they have nothing to do with it. Yes, they're the majority owner, but the you know, decisions are, are Alyeska's. It, it, it's such a ridiculous statement because 
again, there's owners' meetings, and BP is a majority owner, and uh, they make decisions that are good for BP, uh, and uh, everyone has said that. So, uh, you know, reaching out to the ombudsman's office and, and making some explosive claims, uh, particularly about fear, retaliate, uh, fear, retaliation, you know, Hoffler, uh, being a uh, you know just just a you know terrible terrible manager uh, and uh, you know words like spineless were used for the uh, other managers or, or people in senior positions and they started raising some you know serious red flags about there's going to be something's going to happen here and you know Peter we, we've heard that before we've heard it from people like Ken Abbott who said hey. Um, we got to pay attention to Ken Abbott being the whistleblower uh, who, who exposed the uh, issues regarding uh, BP's Atlantis project. So we, we continuously hear uh, from people who, who uh, raise concerns about safety and integrity and warn of, you know, disaster, uh, something catastrophic happening. And yet nobody, you know, no one really pays attention. So... Um, what happened was with the ombudsman's office, the deputy ombudsman, uh, whose name is Billy Gard of the law firm Clifford and Gard in Washington, D.C. That's a woman. That's a woman, yes. Mm-hmm. She actually um, used to work for Alyeska, but before that, she worked for, uh, or, or she represented a number of whistleblowers. Uh, and, and you and I have discussed a, a person by the name of Chuck Hamill. Uh, mm-hmm. And Chuck Hamill was a guy who, uh, you know, exposed many, many of the uh, problems that were happening uh, up on the North Slope. In fact, he is the guy that actually uh, first, uh, you know, exposed problems at the uh, Valdez Terminal and, and, and issues at, uh, uh, with, with uh, Exxon Valdez. Um, and so she... Uh, started making some inquiries and, and, and really putting the pressure on Alyeska, from what I understand, and uh, they hired an independent investigator. And uh, this investigator started looking at the, com- uh, at the concerns, and, and, uh, and at the same time, uh, Bart Stupak's office, uh, Stupak is the uh, uh, chairman of the uh, House Energy Committee Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. And the guy from Michigan who held up the health care uh, reform yeah. over <laughs> abortion rights. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, let me say that, you know, the one thing I do want to add is, to interrupt myself is, is that this was a really long process. And perhaps these things or these investigations, et cetera, you know, take a long time. But, uh, you know, Congress, DUPAC, these, these folks were really dragging their feet. You know, had it not been for the disaster, uh, uh, that, 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 that occurred in the Gulf, I'm not sure what actually would have happened with this particular uh, issue uh, or any other issue that's, you know, that's being raised regarding safety and integrity at, uh, at, at uh, you know, operations across the country at uh, oil companies. So, and, and, Jason, there's a lot of oil money that gets converted to campaign oh, contributions, oh. and that buys a lot of silence in Washington. Tens not of millions of dollars. Not just cocaine at the Minerals Management Service. Right. Yeah, cocaine and meth. Yeah. Um, so Stupak's office, you know, what they were actually focused on uh, was an incident that occurred 
uh, in May. There was a, actually, you know, I mentioned to you that one of the uh, things that, uh, that Alyeska decided to do was remove the crews, remove, literally remove, hu- remove human beings from these pump stations. Uh, and, uh, you know, the pump stations would operate on their own. Uh, and at one pump station, which had, you know, which has a history of uh, serious incidents, uh, Pump Station 9, it's called, up in Prudhoe Bay, uh, there was a major spill just this past May. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this was 4,500 barrels uh, of oil that spilled into a containment center. There was no one around, unmanned, to immediately address it. Uh, you know, you had to wait a bit. And uh, Dupac's office was looking into that. And, you know, during the course of, of, of uh, you know, probing uh, the circumstances behind that, they got a hold of this, this report and the investigation, and it got wind of the, the investigation that was taking place uh, by uh, Charles Thibault. I think I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they started leaning on Hostler. Uh, uh, and uh, the way it was uh, described to me by... Uh, Scott Schlegel, who is uh, Bart Stupak's chief of staff, uh, you know, they, they, they needed to, quote, yank his chain. And uh, he came, that, that report was highly, highly critical of uh, his management style. And, you know, just like I said, about a month ago, I started working on the story, and uh, you know, I got wind of everything and started you know, putting this report together. And, uh, you know, Alyeska became very, very very worried about, uh, you know, about my story and, and really wanted to know how much I knew. And, and they were, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is when you obtain documents, um, literally hundreds of pages, and I didn't let the spokeswoman know exactly what I, you know, had, but uh, after she started sending me, you know, responses to questions, I said, look, you know, we need to get on the phone. We got on the phone, and I said, I, I, I have documents here that just uh, contradicts everything, you know, that, you, uh, that you've just said. And, and, and I read them to her, and, and uh, you know, particularly ones that were incredibly uh, uh, scathing about, uh, you know, Kevin Hoffler and, and his management style and the fact that I, you know, knew that the report said that uh, or recommended a leadership change. And, and uh, uh, you know, from there, just, you know, just started putting the story together. But, you know, what, what I've come away with, Peter, is that this, this culture of, you know, cost-cutting and this culture of, uh, you know, re- retaliating against employees, against whistleblowers, I mean, you know what's so funny, Peter, is that we still don't have protection for, for any of these whistleblowers uh, or, or at least uh, uh, something that would, you know, make them – a, a bit less fearful of speaking out. And, and let me let me let me level, let me just interject that the Obama administration is not friendly to whistleblowers, no, no, and in fact they're cracking not. down on a 22-year-old soldier who they claim is responsible for the leak of that damaging video right. to WikiLeaks that showed uh, American forces essentially doing a turkey shoot at a certain location in Iraq right. just last year. And uh, so, yeah, whistleblowers are not welcome uh, under this or, or preceding administrations. And one of the things that you put a number here on, Jason, that's really uh, helps people understand is that Alyeska's 2010 budget 
was cut by $80 million on orders from BP. This is from 680 to $600 million. That's about a 15% cut. Right. And there are memos that warned that these budget cuts could lead to very serious risks. Right. Let me quote, reductions in the budgets for the above-ground pipeline program, the fuel gas line, and the mainline pipe can place the integrity of the system at risk. There is a risk-ranking exercise that is used, and the concern that the risk-ranking is being used primarily for budget reductions, and although the work is shown as lower risk, it still should be done to protect the environment. So this is just another way that the bean counters massage the numbers, write up phony plans that uh, reduce the, uh, the projected risk, and that probably inflate the response capabilities, or use the kind of boilerplate that we've seen on those applications for drilling in the Gulf, where they all use the same exact language, that, uh, you know, likelihood of a spill is very low, and if so, it would be limited to a few thousand gallons, and, uh, you know, birds and wildlife would not be at risk. Right, yeah, and again, this is, these are such important issues that need to really be tackled uh, and, and investigated thoroughly. You know, I, I still see, even with the deep water horizon, even with the, you know, with BP in the Gulf, I mean, you know, you, you see the Coast Guard, first of all, saying, you know, you can't get anywhere near, uh, you know, the cleanup efforts or, or try to photograph anything. You, you, otherwise, you, you risk uh, uh, being thrown into jail or uh, getting a $40,000 fine, uh, which is uh, something... Sort now, of it, that they, is, they is, implemented. is that what you call change, or is that transparency? I'm <laughs> yeah. trying to get it right. I know. You know, it's hard to tell. I, yeah, with, with the Obama administration, I, I think what they've done uh, is uh, they, 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 like the Bush administration, just use different words uh, to uh, describe things that have the same meaning. So yeah. mm-hmm. uh, uh, with this, it's just, you know, it's more of the same. Yeah. Uh, uh, they just uh, do it with... Uh, a little bit more, you know, eloquence and grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this is this is just another issue, uh, another example of uh, of uh, certainly uh, uh, of a company that uh, needs to be uh, looked at a bit more closely. But I think it's also a, a, a an example of how oversight has just really it's just it's just a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and one of the things you point out uh, with a quote from an unnamed Alieska employee is that these pipes are 35 years old. Right. And if anything, the monitoring and the maintenance of them should be increased, not decreased, because the risk increases with age. That That's just obvious to anybody with a fourth grade education. Right. Exactly. By the way, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a fourth grade education. Yes. Yes, I, it's you know it, it, it's uh, you know think about it as a car, Peter. It's uh, you know you could it's it's still it's you know you still have to pay a bit more attention to it. Mm-hmm. You know you may have uh, you know you can, you can rebuild certain parts of it, but you still have to pay close attention to it because it's old. And you know these employees, you know these these senior officials, they really take their job seriously. Uh, I think that. You know, what's important to also, which, which I need to mention, is that back in 97, Bob Malone, Bob Malone, another, you know, who was the former president of BP Alaska, uh, when he was actually the president of, uh, 
Alyeska, he actually moved employees from Anchorage to Fairbanks uh, at the time. And, and I do have the quote in the story where he said that the, you know, the reason to do that was to make sure that they're right there at the pipeline, that they're you know, right in front of the pipeline, that they, you know, it, it's, a, it's a safety issue, they can uh, address it if something comes up. And uh, here you have someone that's, that, that literally just reversed it just to save a few million dollars, you know, and a few million dollars to a company like this is, 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 is change. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, let's take a moment here to profile the lead ombudsman for BP and uh, the Alyeska operation in Alaska. His name is Span- Stanley Sporkin. He's a retired judge and former general counsel of the CIA. And the best I can say is that instead of going to work for Blackwater, he went to work for BP. Yeah, he's, he's a really... Hard to say. Let me just, if I were to focus on his past, I mean, he's got, he, he has um, quite a history. And uh, uh, some involvement in Iran-Contra. Uh, and uh, he has his own retaliatory issues uh, against, uh, you know, a CIA officer. And uh, there, there's some inter- interesting background on him. He is not someone who is well-respected, let me just say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I did publish a story last week, uh, which uh, was actually uh, involved, uh, it involved an incident in which a whistleblower you know, had exposed a, uh, uh, a corrosion up on BP's uh, uh, projects up on the North Slope, and... Um, Stanley Sporkin prepared a letter for Congress to sort of bring them up to date on, you know, on, on their efforts. And in that letter, he seriously mischaracterized uh, how this incident occurred. But he did so in the context of talking how much of a success his, you know, his leadership has been as ombudsman. And it, it, it literally just sort of robbed the whistleblower of... Um, uh, of uh, you know, having his say because he he, he lodged complaints and, and they just sort of lingered for two years. And during those two years, uh, this whistleblower was was um, uh, couldn't get any work. He was blacklisted. And then, you know, here comes Stanley Sporkin writing this letter to Congress saying, everything's great. You know, this guy came to us. We took care of it. And uh, BP fixed it. And uh, sorry, that's not how it happened. Uh, so... He's not very well respected by employees at um, uh, BP, uh, and, and that's because they don't feel that he is able to provide them with any uh, uh, relief or get issues addressed timely. In fact, they feel that uh, uh, you know his his goal is uh, to uphold BP's interests. And despite that background, that Sporkin is a reliable cover-up kind of guy, you have an interesting site here in the article. Sporkin is said to have discussed the Alyeska issue with Lamar McKay, president of BP North America. McKay reportedly told Sporkin to just deal with it, and that he did not want to have anything to do with the matter. So what, just put a top hat on it and get back to me? (laughs) Yeah, and it's... it's, uh... You know, what's funny about that is Lamar McKay, when he was first brought in about a year ago, one of his, you know, first uh, orders of business was to try and get rid of Sporkin's office. Uh, 
you know, and, and that just uh, didn't work. And, and you know, the, the thing that has employees, what, what uh, upsets them is that they, they know that, you know, Stanley Sporkin's biggest payday is BP. He gets quite a bit of, you know, cash from, uh, from the company. And they were forced to do this. They were forced to put, you know, in a uh, – uh, uh, to hire an ombudsman to uh, create that position after, you know, the revelations that uh, – uh, followed the uh, uh, 2006 uh, uh, spill on the North Slope. So, you know, after those hearings and, 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 and what employees had told Congress the, uh, uh, the, that they were being retaliated against, you know, this was, this was sort of a bargaining, you know, uh, a way to sort of deal with, uh, uh, not have to truly deal with uh, Congress in a sense and, and, and just deal with it they couldn't deal with it internally, so instead of doing, providing, you know, close oversight, Congress said, just get this ombudsman and, and, and he'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think that um, employees feel that uh, uh, they're, they're not listened to. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because the position of the ombudsman, if we were to use the media as an example, I understand that because, you know, if you looked at the, 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 the two most prominent ombudsmen and you know, recent years at the New York Times and at the Washington Post. Um, I think Deborah Powell, the late Deborah Powell at the, Was- at the Washington Post, uh, and over at the New York Times, they're horrible, terrible, absolutely horrendous in, in, in their positions. And, and they don't come across as true independent uh, representatives of the people. They come across as defending the, you know, institutions that they work for. Yeah, well, that's a very important point. Now, one of the senior employees who was retaliated against by Hostler, you talk about in the article named Robert Plumley, and he has a very interesting allegation that he and others cooked the books uh, right. regarding the BP spending on the North Slope. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, basically, you know, Robert Plumley was in a position where. He was in a very senior position, and uh, he met with, uh, you know, Kevin Hosler back in, in, in 2005, and uh, they were discussing a promotion. And he worked out of the chief financial officer's office. Uh, and, uh, you know, after that meeting, this is really interesting, and I think we actually spoke about this before in a uh, previous interview that we that, that, uh, uh, we had in mm-hmm. This revolves around Scott West. If you remember Scott West, he was the uh, EPA's uh, special agent in charge. And he was investigating uh, top BP officials like Tony Hayward and, and Lord John Brown, who was uh, the chairman at the time. And this was preceding the, uh, the uh, uh, spill up on the North Slope. So Robert um, Glenn Plumley had... had uh, met with Kevin Hoffler, and, and, and after that, again, was contacted by special agents. And he, was, he, he alleged that he was told to cook the books on how much money uh, Alieska was spending on pro, um, uh, corrosion prevention, mm-hmm. uh, that he was ordered to change the numbers from $28 million to $46 million. And he was told to do that uh, on orders uh, uh, or, or, or to, to assist BP's president at the time, Steve Marshall. 
Now, what's really important about that is corrosion uh, prevention, it, it was revealed, was not done for more than a decade uh, after the spill up on the North Slope. Hey, if it don't, if it don't be broke, you don't fix right. it, man. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, and this was happening as they were getting ready to, you know, respond to, you know, uh, respond to uh, questions by Congress. And uh, so he was told, you know, to uh, uh, boost estimates of how much Alyeska was spending to fight corrosion on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. And uh, uh, in addition to that, during his interview, he just basically said that uh, uh, he started revealing uh, violations of the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, Sarbanes, uh, Act, Sherman Antitrust violations, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission violations. He named senior officials uh, and uh, really just uh, sort of unloaded uh, quite a bit there. And, uh, you know, after this happened, uh, after his, uh, he was interviewed by special agents, who, by the way, one of them, I confirmed, happened to be Scott West. Scott West is someone I wrote about, uh, you know, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. uh, on how the, the Department of Justice, Bush's Department of Justice, killed his investigation. And, and, and Plumlee actually uh, is a really important figure in that. And, uh, you know, after this meeting, he has said, that uh, Kevin Hoffler, uh, BP, uh, Alieska created a secret file on him uh, and uh, started spying on him. Uh, and he was, you know, he, he filed a complaint against Kevin Hoffler and Alieska with the uh, Department of Labor. But uh, people I've spoken to found his allegations credible, uh, very credible. And in fact, it, it, it's going to factor for me into a, a much lar- a bigger story in, in, in a couple of weeks here because, uh, from what I understand, many people found his allegations credible and they had evidence. And this was part of the reason that overall things were settled uh, during that criminal investigation that uh, you know, Scott West was conducting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's really, again, sort of... Um, I'm not sure if it's actually not ironic, but uh, uh, just similar to what's happening now, is that the person who conducted the independent investigation at the time was Charles Thibault, the same person who's, who's uh, investigating employee complaints now. You know, Plumlee said that he was being spied on. It turns out that back in the 90s, um, Chuck Hamill, who I mentioned earlier, he was he testified uh, about... Uh, how uh, Alyeska hired a, uh, I think it's actually, they're now a defense contractor, believe it or not. Uh, Do you you remember the company Wackenhut? Oh, sure. Wackenhut owns private prisons, too. Right. So they have the, you know, they they, they have the folks in Afghanistan guarding uh, State Department diplomats. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so they hired this, Alyeska hired this company to uh, set up Chuck Hamill. Uh, and uh, so this is, uh, you know, this is a company that really has uh, a history of retaliation. And, uh, you know, I'm actually trying to locate Plumlee right now. It's my understanding that after he left, he moved to the Philippines. Um, but he's a really, really important, you know, figure uh, in terms of having just quite a bit of information as to, you know, what was going on behind the scenes. And, you know, again, the, uh, 
the, the, the revelations, uh, his revelations, what did, it, what did it ultimately lead to? Well, you know, we had some hearings um, in Congress. Uh, you know, BP was, you know, they paid a fine, Alyeska, I, I, they paid their own fines. They hired more people. But that's really it. And here we are now, you know, four years later, and kind of dealing with the same exact issues all over again with the same CEO, you know, with the same independent investigator, with the same allegations. So it's, uh, it, it, that's why I say that I, I do believe it's, it's not just, a, you know, a failure or, or, or of the companies, you know, to um, uh, con- conduct themselves uh, ethically uh, and uh, in accordance with the law. It's also, you know, just a failure of our own elected officials who have been in campaign mode uh, when you think about it, for the past five years, really haven't gotten out of that, and uh, have done a terrible, terrible job of oversight. Well, Jason, obviously, when you have a crisis, you call in the crisis managers, right? the yeah. PR people, and you don't yeah. really fix the problem. You simply try to fix the perception. And what you have described here is an elaborate scheme by BP to distract the public to uh, divert attention, to silence whistleblowers through intimidation and spying and other techniques. And basically, they want to be able to continue doing business as usual from their point of view, continue to cut costs, thumb their noses at safety and emergency response, and simply pump as much as possible to the bottom line. And that's what they have done. That's exactly what they have done. And, And you know what? They're continuing to do it. We actually haven't seen... Uh, I mean, really, what have we seen thus far? We, we you know, we had a uh, uh, a joke of a hearing with Tony Hayward. We've got Henry Waxman releasing some letters, and perhaps they're conducting some thorough investigations. But you know, what's very interesting is that on the you know, just going on to BP and the announcement that Attorney General Eric Holder had made about the fact that there was a, a criminal investigation. You know, I started looking a bit into this, and, and, and up until a week ago, I could tell you that not. No one has been subpoenaed. No one has testified before a grand jury. Documents have not been uh, seized. Uh, very, it's very difficult to understand exactly what this investigate, what, what kind of investigation this is, and if it's a truly, you know, robust uh, criminal investigation. Well, Jason, thank you for this latest installment in your investigative reporting on BP and uh, these issues. Uh, I see a book developing here. I don't know about you, but yeah. I, I'd keep that in mind. Well, thanks, Peter. And uh, maybe you need to start putting a little C in a circle on your journalistic reports. You know, that's, uh, that's pro- I was actually going to change my name to uh, from Jason Leopold to Creative Commons. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to check on that. Well, maybe take a chapter from Jerry Rubin and, and just write, steal this report. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jason Leopold, thank you for this, and uh, I will link to your uh, article so that people can find it uh, even after the fact. And thanks, I Peter. appreciate all the work you're doing on this. We'll talk again soon. I look forward to it, and as, and as always, thanks so much for your support. You bet. Jason Leopold, truthout.org. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company, and I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone at 1-888-ECO-WINE, or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com. A bientôt, j'espère, merci.
we continue on the Peter B. Collins show. In my humble opinion, one of the biggest blunders of Barack Obama, and gosh, they're mounting now on the PBC scoreboard, but right up there with retaining Robert Gates as Secretary of Defense was the appointment of Timothy Geithner as Secretary of Treasury. And frankly, I think the problem is getting worse. What you're about to hear is excerpts of an interview that Geithner gave to the public television news hour, and it aired on July the 6th. And this will give you a little insight into how I spend my evenings. I have a TiVo device, and I record the PBS News Hour and Keith Olbermann and Rachel Maddow and a couple of other news programs, and I zip through them and watch the things that I care about. And as I watched this interview with Geithner, I was screaming at my flat-screen TV set. I was talking back to the Secretary of the Treasury because I felt that he was bullshitting, and, and I can't put any nicer term on that. But he delivered a pitch that was worthy of a carpet salesman or a, you know, I, I don't want to demean salesmen because there are a lot of good salespeople out there. But he kept reciting the same talking points about the deep scars of the economic meltdown and uh, how things could be much worse. And certainly, you know, things could be much worse. I don't dispute that. But that's a line of argument that has a very limited shelf life. Because we really don't know what would have happened if our government had not bailed out AIG, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, and the other big players on Wall Street. Nobody will ever be able to know that. And I accept that things were on a dire course and that things could be worse. I'll just go ahead and say that. But this only goes so far. Because when you see the way that money was secretly moved from the Treasury Department, from the Federal Reserve, either directly into these private corporations or in a manner that absorbed their uh, liabilities, we don't know the true extent to which taxpayer money was used to bail out the corruption, the bad bets, and the outright fraud that occurred on Wall Street. Tim Geithner is part of that culture. He was at the New York Fed when Henry Paulson and Ben Bernanke we're framing the bailout, pumping this money desperately into companies. And it all revolved around the bad decisions they made to expand the risk. They call it leverage. And they were leveraging so far out in the stratosphere and expecting that AIG, which held the insurance on so many of these wagers, about credit default swaps and uh, other exotic financial instruments, as we know from the testimony before the Senate and the testimony before the Angelitis Commission, the guys on Wall Street were playing both sides. They were putting bad deals out there to be consumed by different funds, pension funds, 
other investors, including the small people like you and me, investments that they knew would fail, investments that they knew were toxic from the day they were created and offered with phony representation from ratings firms and with the backstop that, well, if this shit blows up, AIG will pay it out. And we put in, what was it, $185 billion of taxpayer money to prop up AIG. And, what, $15 billion immediately went out the door to Goldman Sachs to make them whole on investments that were not worth $0.100 cents on the dollar? Well, I think you get how I feel. And so I'll try to restrain... Well, no, I won't. Let's listen to Jim Lehrer interviewing Timothy Geithner. And Lehrer does an okay job here of of trying to get him to focus on the issues. And Geithner is relentless in staying to his, sticking to his talking points. In more than a week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up more than 170 points. This is Lehrer. Doubts about the economy took hold again. The Dow finished with a gain of 57 points to close at 97.43. The Nasdaq rose two points to close near 2094. Market fears have been magnified by weakness in job creation and housing, and investors remain nervous about financial reform. We talked about this earlier this evening with Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Good to be here, Jim. Has the economic recovery taken a sudden turn for the worse? Jim, the economy is healing. Here comes the spin. It's getting stronger, and I'm very confident we're going to continue to grow and continue to make progress, not just repairing the damage caused by this crisis, but building a stronger economy that's going to create better opportunities uh, for all Americans. But it doesn't seem that way. All the, the current things, the stock market, uh, jobless rates, we'll go through this specifically in a moment, but there's a feeling that things, there might even be a double-dip uh, recession coming. You don't feel that. Well, Jim, I think it's important to recognize that the scars of this crisis cut very, very deep. This is the first, I think, of four late, times he talks about ago. the scars. You saw people across the country saw their savings fall by more than 40%. Thousands of businesses were closing their doors. Millions of Americans lost their jobs. In January alone of 2009, you know, the economy lost three-quarters of a million jobs. But we've now had six months of sustained growth in jobs by the private sector. Exports are doing relatively well. Investment is increasing. And you can see companies across this country in high-tech, lots of other industries, doing very well because we are a very resilient country, very strong country. And this president acted with enormous political courage to rescue the economy took some very tough steps, not popular steps, to rescue the economy, fix the financial system early, and take on the tough reforms. And because he did that, we're going to emerge from the stronger. Now, what he said here is the president rescued the economy. He did not. He did not rescue homeowners facing foreclosure, with the exception of about a million people who've been able to uh, refinance or otherwise hold on to their homes. No. He bailed out the very wealthy, the people who took us to the brink and risked it all and then blackmailed us into providing the money after, of course, arguing that the free market controls everything and will will correct any problems that develop. They don't need oversight. They don't need regulation. They just screwed things up so badly that they needed our money desperately, without any questions, without any strings attached. 
and he spins it this way. But if it's going so well, then why do so many people feel it isn't going so well? Again, because, again, important to recognize the scars, the scars of this crisis were Item two traumatic. on the scars. You know, people experienced something they hadn't experienced in their lifetime, which is to see the value of savings plummet. Mm -hmm. Terrible blow to base. Now, excuse me here, Secretary. It's not about scars. It's about fraud. And at some point, the barons of Wall Street crossed the line from just taking too much risk to recognizing that they were in deep, deep shit. And then they began to cover it up and they tried to Ponzi their way out of it by selling more bad deals to unsuspecting people and hoping that somehow they could make that work. This man is, is good at spin, but it's not about scars, Mr. Geithner. It is not about scars. It's a confidence, and you're still seeing lasting effects of that damage on business confidence and how people feel about their basic lives. So people feel understandably still a little cautious, a little tentative. The, the other big issue here, and this is anecdotal on my part, but while we have prompt, uh, propped up the banks, we loaned them a lot of money, and some of it's been paid back, it has not produced liquidity. We are not seeing that qualified borrowers can get the money that they need and deserve on appropriate terms from the banks, even as the banks enjoy uh, continuing benefits from the consolidation uh, that occurred because of the, the collapse, the financial meltdown. And we have bigger uh, to fail institutions that we than we even had two years ago. I've seen a little concern about Europe uh, wash across the American economy, but you know no recoveries are even and steady. But what you can what you can say today with confidence is we're in a much stronger position today than we were 18 months ago. Much stronger position to deal with our challenges ahead, and we're going to continue to work to make sure we we make progress in restore repairing what was damaged, restoring a basic sense of confidence to American businesses, American families. Well, everybody would agree that the biggest concern everybody has is their jobs, is their that. job and other people's jobs. See, isn't it what, seven million jobs have been lost since the uh, crisis hit? Now, Lehrer raises a very important question here, and I credit him for that. But listen to Geithner's answer. Because he's spinning and offering blue sky, the truth is many people who were working two years ago will never work again. Many people who got laid off over the last two years will never achieve the income levels that they peaked at two or three years ago. But you won't hear him say that. Well, again, and only 600,000 have been recovered thus far? No, we got a long way to go still, absolutely. And again, it just shows again how deep the hole was, how bad things were. But we're making progress. The economy is growing. You need growth before you get job creation. The economy's now been growing for a year. Uh, and again, we've had six months of sustained increase in job growth. Income Not last month, again. though. People are working longer. And that's going to continue to get gradually better. And again, we're going to keep working at it, trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure this economy is growing. People have more opportunity. Uh, you know, better, better confidence are going to have a chance uh, in the future. Speaking of confidence, as the... The downward uh, moves of the stock market uh, in the last uh, several days and weeks, does that trouble you? Well, again, you, do, you had a, we had a long run of improving markets, 
home values more stable, value of people's savings increasing again, and that's very good. It's a sign of greater confidence again. And again, you've seen, you know, recoveries are never even, never steady. You Third time you said that. Uh, coming from Europe about their capacity to manage for these problems. I think they will manage for these, their problems in Europe. I think they're taking the steps they need to take to make sure that they're growing again. If you look at, across the rest of the world, you know, China, India, Brazil, Mexico, emerging markets are, are very strong now. And America is very good. That's where the jobs are, the markets that he just mentioned. The they're not here. workers in the world. Our, our great companies operate at the frontier of innovation across the things that are so important to growth around the world. And that's one reason why we came out of this, this crisis more quickly than other countries. And again, we're going to continue to make progress, Jim. And, and this is, again, he dances around the hard truths, and that is that those have been laid off in Detroit. Those have been laid off from manufacturing jobs that have been offshored. Those jobs aren't coming back. Sure, the tech field is bouncing back and those who have a good education, those who have a history in the industry, uh, they're going to have somewhat of a future. But the productivity that we saw in the 90s and through 2008, the manufacturing, things that go beyond the service economy and white-collar jobs, those have taken devastated hits. And certain states, Michigan in particular, Ohio secondarily, those are ones I know about. Other states certainly might be similarly affected. They're never going to be the same. But at the micro level, at the human level, uh, it's estimated with some of the congressional oversight people on housing estimate that or say there's going to be a million more foreclosures every year for the next several years. Yeah, housing is still very tough. It's still very tough. But again, isn't that what really matters to people? Plus See, uh, Geithner is trying to cut off. Uh, what's a relatively tough line of questioning from Mr. Lehrer, uh, to spin back to the positive. It's their jobs? I, I, everything someone, else is kind of secondary to that? For people who own a house, in many ways it's still their most important financial asset. They're still going to have some savings in the bank that matter to their financial security, but the house, the value of their house is still very important. And when the president came in, most forecasters thought house prices could fall another 30% of mm. But in fact, we've seen almost 18 months of basic stability in house prices because of the actions the president took. Uh, it's much more affordable now to borrow to finance a house, to refinance. And the president has put in place a series of programs to give more Americans a chance to keep their home if they can afford to do that. Now, he, again, is spinning here because... Uh, even people who qualify for mortgages have a hard time getting them right now. Uh, and the uh, number of people who are being given any kind of federal assistance to stay in their homes is minuscule compared to the scope of the problem. And Lara correctly points out that there are mortgages that uh, will be resetting and moving upward over the next five years that will force even more people out of their homes. And Geithner, I do believe, has said one thing honestly here, and that is that uh, we found a certain uh, short-term bottom in, in the housing market. It doesn't appear to be imploding any further. But that means that uh, most Americans have lost huge amounts of equity that they will not recover for years to come. And the combination of foreclosures and vacant unsold homes is going to make it harder for people to capture their equity and uh, retire, downsize any of the normal moves that people used to make with real estate. So there are many people now who are trapped into an underperforming investment that's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future. Did he mention that? Um, 
Not that I can tell. And these programs are helping to lower their monthly payments. But again, housing, the housing market's still very hard, very tough mm -hmm. out there. And there's got a lot of, lot of um, challenge still ahead. But that basic measure of progress, which is a little more stability in the value of people, is enormously important. Here again, on the individual level, there are, uh, there's a, you mentioned uh, some of the federal programs. One, in sp one specific is $50 billion set aside for, to help people with uh, foreclosure problems. And that was, it started 15 months ago, and yet only $200 million of that money has been spent. Well, but, no, but Jim, this is a very important program. Again, what the president did up right away was... Look at the spin here. I mean, Lehrer has a very important point. The money was made available, but it's not actually being deployed. And what does Geithner do? He returns to his talking points. Take a variety of steps to try to make sure we bring interest rates down to make affordable, more affordable people to keep you their house. You can't bring interest that's rates right, further down. House prices. That's very important because, as you said, that's one of the most important financial assets a family has. But he also put in place this program that'll, that has given more than a million Americans a chance to stay in their house. And those programs lowered monthly payments. One million uh, out of how many, Mr. Secretary? A month for people who benefited from those programs. And we're going to continue to work to make sure those programs reach as many people as they can. We've announced a series of programs for states that go directly to the hardest hit states, the 10 states most hit by falling home prices, high unemployment, to make sure they have more resources to help, to help, to help uh, homeowners that are unemployed or suffer some other... And, and meanwhile, Meanwhile, many of those states are laying off public employees, and the ripple effect from that will make it harder and harder, if not impossible, for many people to hold on to their homes, even with the modest federal assistance that he is taking credit for here. Financial, unanticipated financial problem, uh, but we're going to keep working to make sure these programs reach as many people as we can. Isn't it correct to say, though, that they really haven't touched that many people? Well, again, the stability in house prices and the lower interest rates touch millions and millions and millions of Americans. Everybody but, but the flip side of that is the low interest rates make it uh, uh, very, uh, uh, what, uh, they, they, it takes any incentive out of saving. If you put money in the bank and, and you get 1% interest on it, and your home is not increasing in value, and you can't uh, risk money in a volatile stock market, then you're stagnant. Financially stagnant. And all the spin in the world from Tim Geithner won't change that. Who has a house benefits from those things. And the president's programs, again, have given more than a million Americans a chance to stay in their homes and take advantage of lower monthly payments. Now, these programs are not going to be able to reach all people hurt by this crisis. Okay? And they're not going to benefit investors who are speculating their house prices. They don't go to the most... Now, I want you to listen carefully here, because this is when I started really screaming at the TV when I first saw this. Because here he is working in a sop to the money people, to Wall Street, to the banks, to the mortgage people who wrote all those no-doc uh, liar loans and pocketed the fees and commissions on them and then let them blow up. And he's going to recite here a list of people on the borrowing side who he is uh, eliminating from any prospect of federal aid. And this, I believe, just uh, very starkly depicts the bias that Tim Geithner has toward the banks and against the average American. 
fortunate Americans that bought very, very expensive homes or a second home. Mm -hmm. They're not going to uh, reach people who lied about their income, uh, were unable to prove that they had income, not, were unable to prove they're eligible. But they are reaching and have made a very big difference in the lives of more than a million homeworkers, again, giving them a chance to stay in their home. The financial reform legislation. Is any question in your mind it's going to eventually pass the Senate and be signed by the President? No, it, it looks like it's going to pass, and, and it should pass again because all Americans have a stake in this in this financial reforms. Remember, think what it was like 18 months ago. You know, people saw worst financial crisis in generations. The value of their savings fall by 40 percent on average. Millions of people lost their jobs, lost their homes, saw businesses fail. He's reciting the same talking points. And it demonstrates why all Americans have a stake in. Now, homes. wait a minute. This crisis didn't touch everybody because Wall Street people got their bonuses every year, irrespective of their role in causing this problem. Sorry again, Mr. Secretary. They're going to give better protections for Americans and make sure that the financial system goes back to the business of helping Main Street businesses get access to credit so they can borrow to invest and expand. There, it's a very complicated bill, and we don't have time to go through the whole thing. But one of the things that caused the financial crisis was this too-big-to-fail idea, particularly among the banks. Right. And uh, most of the analysis of uh, the current situation is these banks are not only as big as they were, some of them are even bigger now than they were when the financial crisis hit. So how's anything going to change? Two most important causes of this crisis, Jim, were that we allowed a bunch of financial activity to operate in the shadows. Firms take on enormous amounts of risk without the financial cushion capital to back those. And without adequate regulation. And we let millions of Americans be taken advantage of, uh, vulnerable to fraud and abuse. That's what caused the subprime crime crisis. Now, what this bill does, though, is extend to all Americans, consumers and investors, much better protections against fraud and abuse and predation and will limit risk-taking by these large institutions so they can never again put the economy in the position where the mistakes they make put the economy at risk as a whole. Now, what he's not saying is that we haven't fixed the underlying problem of banning these high-risk uh, instruments, uh, the highly leveraged uh, mortgage products that were sold and spun out of individual home mortgages, and that we have not reinstated the Glass-Steagall Act to prevent banks from uh, in, engaging in highly risky behavior with depositors' money. Now, there are some improvements in this bill, but it doesn't reinstate the status quo back to 1998 before uh, Glass-Steagall was repealed uh, by Phil Graham and his buddies, and it, uh, it does not address uh, the too-big-to-fail issue the other problem that is still uh, being worked through in the Congress is that the $18 billion tax on banks has been stripped out. And the fundamental concept of the bill was that uh, we would have banks put money into a pool so that if they needed a bailout in the future, they'd get the money from the pool, then they would be shut down, and so we would not be putting ourselves through this cycle again. But that's a, a half-baked promise given that the Republicans have been successful in the Senate in stripping out the, the tax on banks. And who, of course, uh, asked for that? <laughs> the banks. If this bill becomes law, does that mean 
we are no longer at risk from a similar financial crisis? We will have a much better chance to prevent future crises and limit their damage, act much more effectively, much earlier, limit the damage, and not leave the taxpayer exposed to bearing the burden of these crises. These are very tough reforms, very strong reforms, and they will help restore trust and confidence in the system. Empty words, talking points, spin, but when you boil it all down, there's nothing there, Tim Geithner. Think back, Jim, to the Great Depression. It took this government four years after the Great Crash of 1929 to put in place basic protections for banks and the securities laws. And those reforms laid the foundation for decades of the most impressive record of investment, innovation, growth any major economy had ever seen. But we allowed the moss to grow, risk to operate in the shadows. The market outgrew these protections, and the damage caused by that failure was catastrophic. But what these reforms do is prevent that from happening. Well, I wish Mr. Geithner would say who we are. Because there's some elements in truth what he, in what he just said, but I think he's talking about all of us and not his Brioni-suited colleagues in the financial sector. Again, because they'll extend this net of protections across the economy and make sure, again, banks can't take risks on a scale that they could damage the economy as a whole. Finally, Mr. Secretary, putting all this together now, after these many months, and where we, where we are now, do you understand why there's still millions of Americans very angry about what's happened to them as a result of the financial crisis and the economic uh, crisis that has followed, and so many of these things have yet to be fixed. Absolutely. People are still incredibly angry and frustrated that they, who were responsible, careful in decisions made, were damaged by the actions of people who were irresponsible, by the failures of Washington to provide basic protections against financial crisis. And again, the scars of this crisis oh, here very, come the very scars again. last for a long time. And that's why all of us in Washington have such a great responsibility and obligation to make sure we are working every day to make sure we have an economy that's creating jobs again at a more faster pace. We fix what is broken. And again, we restore confidence in the basic strength of America and providing opportunities to those who work hard. Well, Mr. Secretary, you haven't restored my confidence. You haven't answered the questions honestly. And I assume that you are deeply aware of the real issues here. But politically, you can't bring yourself to talk about them. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. My email is peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then.